You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 8 of Turning to the Mystics, where we've been turning to Mech Tilde of Magdeburg, and in this session, we're going to reflect on listener questions. And I'm here with Jim. And Jim, I just wanted to start by sharing how wonderful it is to get these questions every season yeah. and to feel the sense of community around us listening to the podcast. It's just beautiful. It really is. I sat and read through them all. They're very heartfelt. And you can tell how sincerely touched they are by listening to the mystics. So, yeah, it's wonderful. Mm. Yeah. So you ready to get started? Yep, I'm ready. Okay, so the first topic we're going to look at is love. And the first question comes from Brian, and he's reflecting on uh, that concept of bound love. He, he says, in session three, you reflect upon MacTilde's discussion of bound love versus unbound love. If I understand correctly, when she's discussing bound love, She's really describing a kind of love that, utter, that is utterly pure, sincere and focused, perhaps similar to, to when two lovers say to one another, I have only eyes for you and truly mean it. If so, this bound love seems to me to be something paradoxically freeing. Freedom here is not the unrestricted ability to choose, but rather the lifting of the burden of craving, mixed motivations, deception, etc., Surrendering to this bound love seems to be an entry point into the path of endless liberation, if I may borrow your phrase from the first season on Merton. Can you please talk a bit more about the paradoxical freedom that arises in surrendering to the bound love that Mechtild describes? Let's say first, and, and uh, Brian, he picks this out with, between two people. Bound love, I only have eyes for you. So they're each other's fidelity to each other as the beloved, they're bound. But they're bound in the freedom of love. And if they would compromise that fidelity, they're actually becoming bound in a negative sense. They're being bound by hurtful patterns. But, you know, and they have to look at that and where's that coming from and so on. So bound is um, actually bound to the freedom of the fullness of love. So with God, bound love is knowing, first of all, uh, God freely chooses to be in bonded love with us. We are the beloved. So God's infinitely faithful to us and bound to us as the beloved. And we, however, we're bound in the sincerity of our intention. But in our wavering heart, there's ways that we're half-hearted. There's ways that we, whatever. And so by accepting our half-heartedness, because God does, and we keep surrendering it over to God, it deepens the bond. See, the word bond, that our, that our faith isn't in our ability to, to measure up and stay it's constantly faithful. It's rather a deep faith in God's infinite fidelity to us in our wavering ways. And we're bound to this peace of God's mercy on us. And uh, so, yes, he's, Brian's right. That's, that's it, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you, Jim. That explanation really helped too. I'm going to combine the next two questions. Eileen asks, while I resonate completely with the passage on unbound love, 
I question whether it is possible to fulfill the longing for bound love, which we all desire so much, without spiritual direction. I had thought if I trusted the Lord, I could maybe get there, but the more I read and listen, I have doubts. What do you think, Jim? And then I wanted to combine that with a question from Andrea who just asks, what is spiritual direction? Is it a, is it a Catholic thing? Is it common? Um, Andrea hadn't heard about spiritual direction, so I thought we could combine those two. Yeah, let's do that. Um, uh, first of all, spiritual direction, it is in the Catholic tradition. However, there's more and more uh, Protestant denominations that are including it. In the Protestant tradition, it would be going to the pastor for pastoral counseling. So you might see the pastor for how is God present in this situation? So in the Catholic tradition, that would be spiritual direction, usually like once a month, on how can I better discern God's presence, one with me in this situation, and how do I discern God's will? And if you're interested in spiritual direction, you would call, you could call the nearest Catholic retreat house and ask to speak to one of the spiritual directors there and see if they have any openings. And you could, some people find it extremely helpful. Also, some dioceses have programs where they train lay people in the diocese to be spiritual directors. And you can go to a director and you can also, especially if, if they have it, let the director know you're looking for someone that gives contemplative spiritual direction, is sensitive to that. So that's, that's what that is. There's also Spiritual Directors International. Yeah. And you can go to their website and they have listed a number of spiritual directors. And so also spiritual directors can be trained by the Catholic Church. They're not priests. It's kind of a ministry of, of yeah. A lot of lay people are spiritual directors. That's true. Spiritual directors international. That's true. That's a good point for people. So a lot of people on this path don't have a spiritual director. But Merton told me in the monastery it's true. Uh, but you have the scriptures. And you have your faith. And you have the blessings in your life. And you have fidelity to your daily quiet time. And, and so uh, how I put it is deep down there's no lack of spiritual guidance. There's only a lack of awareness of the guidance being given. There's a kind of a providential guidance that's given in attentiveness. But if you can, and sometimes too, I burned him again in his guest appearance too, said, Sometimes it's just two people. It's not where one gives spiritual direction to the other, but they take turns sharing their spiritual journey like guidance and support and spiritual friendship with each other. And so, Jim, just reflecting on the question about whether someone could discover this bound love without spiritual direction. Yes. I think, uh, you, in other words, I, they wouldn't know what to call it. They wouldn't know what to call it, but they would know that there's been a certain kind of uh, internal consistency of the felt sense of the nearness of God. And the, I, I call it the, the gift of their own awakening heart. So you decline into it and walk with it. And it would take different forms. It could be in fidelity to solitude or fidelity to silence or fidelity to walking in the midst of nature or a certain way God's presence in a form of service to the community. And they would just, it, it would be, a, a, it's an experience. And this is just a way of putting words to that experience. Mm. So something that draws you to give yourself fully to it, whether it's like you're saying the silence or walking in nature or something like that, yeah. That's why I like Merton's saying that when we pray, we begin by knowing that we belong to God. So we're being guided by God. And he said also to know that in the spiritual order of things, to understand is to realize that you're infinitely understood. And in your heart, you know it's true and you live by it. 
And that's this bound love in your heart. You know? Yeah. One last thing on the spiritual direction piece, Jim. I was just thinking as we read through these listener questions, there's, it's like being in spiritual direction, that what people share and how they share it. it it's like uh, the, the communication between you and the listeners is, is very much like a spiritual direction event. It really is. And I think when we read the mystics out loud or listen to what they're saying, they talk like that. No, it's, it's right at the edge of spiritual direction. And what they're really doing is they sat with many people face to face. And so they already know the kind of questions seekers ask. And that's why when we read them or listen to this talk, it sounds so personal because it's coming out of a personal experience. And this is why their questions are so good because the questions are so personal. Yeah, yeah. This way. And, uh, and this is why I often said this too, another format to be we can't do it is one at a time we could take one person and, and uh, the, the person, I, as others listen, could have a dialogue and they would share. I would ask them questions and out of the dialogue, out of the spiritual direction, there could be more refinement of it on how the process works, uh, which is like spirit, at spiritual direction. The parallel of psych, psychotherapy is like that too. You know? Yes, yeah. Spiritual direction is really just a director's trained to ask the right questions and to have the right kind of presence to draw you deeper and deeper into your own life's experience. Yeah. That's how the way I put it is the director asks a question and the question is such that in order to respond, you have to pause to listen to a moment to yourself to know what you say. Then you're becoming more present to yourself in the spiritual director's presence. And so the director is directing you to be like Lexio, like an internal listening to your own heart, how God speaks quietly within, and that you can cultivate and develop that process within yourself. Yeah. A question from Laura. I wanted to ask Jim how he might compare or contrast or otherwise relate the concept of the love dowry to the observation he frequently makes that the part of us that was never born is also the part that will never die. The da- yes, it's the, the hidden dowry of our being, is the way I put it. <clears throat> is that, you know, the dowry is that when God creates us as the beloved, uh, God creates us with the promise of, of making infinite union with the infinite mystery of God to be the very dowry of our being. It's our God-given godly destiny that's given to us in our eternal nothingness without God. And this dowry is a self that was never born because in exemplar causality, there's a poetic sense of knowing that that from all eternity, God contemplated you in the Word. And uh, God contemplated you in the Word. Since everything, Merton says, since everything in God is God, this is the divinity of you that was never born because God is not known. So when God created you, like let there be Jim, let there be Kirsten, whatever, in time and space, in time with grace, we're called the discoverer for ourselves, who God eternally knows us to be before the origins of the universe, which is the mystical experience, which is the deepening of faith, really. The eternality of ourself, the body dies, but uh, we're eternal, that the beloved never dies. Beautiful. Love it. Um, I want to share, uh, Sharon sent us two questions, and I just think this is so beautiful that uh, the first question, she's longing to understand what love means, and, and she ends the question, 
still baffled and um, asking deeper questions. And then there's a follow-up email where she says, I went back to the first dialogue on Mechtild and found the following passage. What stands out is the very living substance of ourself is love, and that is God. And then she uses this dowry of our being, the dowry of our being. One way to say it is that we say that God is love, that the infinite love of God is an ongoing, self-donating act, creating us in the image and likeness of love as our very identity, our very destiny. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, this is so key. So I was reading again on the true self in Merton, a new season of contemplation. I think it's page 37. Pray for your identity, the ultimate identity. Uh, here's the way uh, I, I shared it in earlier, one of the earlier sessions, I think, the way Dan Walsh put it in the medieval philosophy classes at the monastery. The way he put it, and he understood it in Duns Scotus on the person, is that before creation, there was no capacity for love in God because God is the overflowing infinity of love itself. If you have a glass of water, a glass on a table and you're filling it with water till it overflows, there's no capacity for water in the cup. So there's no capacity. So God creates the capacity for the infinite mystery of God, and that's you. When God created you, God created a kapox dei, a capacity to receive the infinity of God. St. John of the Cross says in the living flame of love, he said, I'm not so moved that you're infinitely in love with me, but I'm moved that you created in me an abyss-like depth that's capable of receiving the infinity of your love. And uh, that's the mystery, of the, that's the true self. That's the transsubjective mystery of ourself. Mm. Well, I hope that resonates with listeners the way that session resonated with Sharon. It's so beautiful to see someone searching and searching with their heart wide open you know, writing into us and then to get the answer they're looking for. Uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. You know, I was, uh, when I was in the monastery, you know, we chanted the Psalms in Latin first in the Vatican Council in English. And they faced each other and they go back and forth chanting the psalm. And there was a, a, a Baptist minister um, uh, in the choir loft listening. And, and, and so he was used to their own forms of prayer, of singing and dance. And uh, he, he wondered why no one was shouting out God and yelling out the, the, the praise of God. And the monk giving the talk, in Kentucky they had these fireflies, you know, lightning bugs. I don't know if you ever yes. seen they light up, but it's very pretty. Amazing. In Ohio yes. they had them, they're very pretty. And he said, you know, when we're chanting the Psalms, what if every time we're struck by an inspiration by reading a text of the Psalms, by, by side still waters you leave me, we would light up like lightning bugs. You'd see, <laughs> you'd see the monks. Uh, lighting up and going on and off. And so these illuminations, we're, we're listening and we're struck by something. You know, we're struck by the beauty of it. And our heart knows it's beautiful because it's true. And I think that's God. You know, I think that's God speaking to us in these words, yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Jim, and thank you, Sharon, for sharing that with us. A question from Saskia. Sometimes I have the feeling to live in two, two different worlds, on the one hand, the mystics help me to be more grounded and to respond as sincerely as possible to the daily challenges of my life. On the other hand, Mechtild's words are so intimate. They awaken in me a longing and an inner warmth beyond words. Sometimes it makes me feel like a stranger in ordinary life. Then I am left wondering if I am dreaming too much. Do you have suggestions how to deal with this? I'll use an example from the nuptial mystics, the married. That in the marriage, they're... 
there are moments where there's just nothing but the oneness of giving themselves to each other. But they can't live there all day long because they have to do the chores. <laughs> See? But the point is, the warmth of the moments of their oneness with each other radiates out as an underlying sensitivity to doing the chores this way. So it's the same with prayer. There are certain moments of oneness, like utter stillness in the oneness. But little by little, there's a kind of atmospheric sensitivity to God's presence and wiping off the kitchen counters or uh, sitting down to have a cup of tea. You start to see the underlying sustaining presence of God in the rhythms and flow of ordinariness. And uh, I, I think that's what the path is like. So we're, we're not dreaming too much. I think it's a gift to dream. <laughs> but it's always, we're always looking to not separate the dream from realizing the dreams being lived out in the concreteness of the moment this way. And that's, that sensitivity is habituated over time. It becomes more and more an underlying sensitivity, I think. So, Jim, then we have a question from Jenny. In one of the episodes about Mechtild of Magdeburg, Jim said, apologies for the paraphrase, regarding God's love and presence, I don't feel it, but I don't need to because I know it never leaves me and I live by it. This was very helpful to me as it helps me to understand even more fully the experience of the dark night. And for me, understanding can lead to greater acceptance. So here's my question. Regarding the dark night experience, how can we discern if we are being called to something else, a deeper or different embodying of God's love in the world, or instead a deeper acceptance of the lack of felt experience of God's love? Is my experience of holy longing necessary, or am I missing some invitation? As Jim often says, this falls into the realm of spiritual direction, but where can one find spiritual direction of this sort? So a suggestion Maybe that could be a focus of the next workshop that Jin offers. And then Jenny offers us a poem which I'm going to read. Here is a poem which expresses my questions, thoughts, experiences. I have been standing, watching, waiting for a long time. Is this obedience or my reluctance to hear, to see? Whose turn is it, mine or yours, divine one? Is there a step I am yet to take, or is the next step yours? Are you asking me to continue to wait for some form of clarity, calling? Or are you awaiting me, asking that I bravely step forward into an unknown land, exposing the desires of my heart? A couple things come to mind. Uh, you know, later we're going to start doing uh, the, the mystical voice of poets, too. And this is a good example of this kind of poetic voice. Uh, <clears throat> you know, this question, see, how do I know that I'm on the verge of a deeper calling, like the dark night, I'm in, I'm in this uh, strange deprivation mm -hmm. of the ability to experience God on my terms. And how do I know it's because I'm at the edge of this deeper place? Or how do I know I'm just not accepting my own inabilities? You know, I'm just kind of contented to not to go deeper. How do I know at this way? And two things come to me. One, we, we share this in the Merton sessions, I think, too. Uh, this is, it applies here. He says, you know, in the beginning, when people first find this path, beginners have many questions, such as these, this, all these questions. And so they look to get answers to their questions, as well they should. 
He said, but as they go down the road a ways, far enough, they discover here all along here, God's the one asking the question. And not only do they not know the answer to God's question, they don't understand the question. And that's where we begin. And so this poem, Dear Lord, see, then I'll be God talking. Yeah, these are great questions. I'm waiting to see what you come up with. Because the very fact you wonder about it is already me. See, the sincerity of your wondering, see, is the intimate, unexpected nearness of me prompting your heart to sit like this, like empty-handed, bereft, see, and yet somehow it's hallowed, or this matters, or there's something, something unexplainable about this is important, you know. And uh, so I, I, I answer in those ways. Mm, beautiful. It's a lovely poem. I enjoyed reading it and being able to read it out loud. So thank you, Jenny. Very, very touching. Jim, before we finish on the topic of love, we have two voicemails uh, questions. So Corey's going to play the first one for you. Hi, this is a question relating to Turning to the Mystics and episode one and dialogue one of Mechthilde Magdeburg. My question is that you, you set up the idea of, of tasting God and having an experience of God and the desire for that set against the, the potential attachment to that and the, the attachment to want more of that, for example. And I just, I want to know really how you balance those things. I'm someone who, who longs for that taste, who, who has prayed on many occasions to be touched by God in that incredible and privileged and, and um, blessed way. But I also recognize that there, there can be a strong attachment to, to that being the, the ultimate thing in life. So that's my question. Thank you. This is my sense of it. It's so personal. So let's say one is graced with these moments. And understandably, one would like to be habitually established in them. And uh, also, one discovers one can't be. You know, but one desires to be. And, uh, and this is why Eckhart, too, points out that, that that's the seduction of these fleeting touches that has this peace in it like this. So my sense of it is this, if God, under, if God who's the author of these touches, it's really the touch of God, God's also the author of the longing to abide in the touch. You know, God does that when we taste something really amazing, our hearts are created in such a way to be habitually established in that which is amazing. It's normal. But my sense is this, the very fact we can't be habitually abiding in it is the lesson. Mm. I, I can't abide in it because I, 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 I desire it, but what I really desire, Lord, is to do your will. And when I taste it, I taste it because you're willing that I taste it. And if I'm not tasting it, you're willing that I not taste it. And so you're trying to help me or ask me, I ask you to help me to understand that you're just as present in not tasting it as you are in the taste. That the taste isn't more of you, it's the curtain opening to fleetingly realize what every moment is. Waking up in the morning and going to bed at night, standing up and sitting down. And I, I ask for the grace to, to, to come to this awareness. And that's why I think also it's not a matter of um, 
of these experiences, but I think a lot of it is calibrating our heart to an ever finer scale, to we start to pick up in the breath, we start to pick up in the most incidental moment, the, the uncomprehensible stature of simple things. So we start somewhere by getting a good taste. It's like married love again, like being frantically in love with each other. And then it mellows over the years with a lot of ups and downs in it, and it goes deeper unexpectedly. Reflecting along these lines about this has helped me to understand this, because I also know what it's like to want to abide, and I'm no stranger to that feeling. Yes, yeah. I loved that question, and then, Jim, your response, I almost want to print that out and put it on my daily meditation. I probably will. Just those words you just offered were so helpful. I, I will need to read them over and over again to kind of really let that sink in, but thank you for that answer. That's really Wonderful. I had one more thing. I had one more thing. It's like an awareness that I'll use a simple example. When I stand up, if I could really, 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 really see all that standing up is, I'd see God mm. giving the infinity of herself away as the immediacy of my standing up. See, And I'm trying to come to an underlying conviction in my heart that I can't explain that that's true. And I try to live by it you now. Thanks, Tim. Hi, my name is Lorraine, and I'm calling about Mechtout, and I am uh, reading the book, and I am listening to the podcast, which I completely love the podcasts. I always listen to the podcasts every season, multiple times. Anyway, I guess I am asking for a little more understanding regarding the love, the human love qualities that are being uh, cast onto God. First of all, I can see where she's coming from when she asks this. Because if the love of God is infinite, but the love of two people in love is finite, to be comparing that infinite love to this finite love, it seems like we're going backwards instead of forward. And... Um, that's a good insight to see that. But what she's really saying is this, another way to look at it is this. This love between two people is created by God. God creates that love in all of its details. And since everything in God is God, this is the divinity of the details of their love for each other. Now, it's true that they can have possessiveness of heart and cling be it, to be attached to the pleasures or experiences or fulfillment and uh, that's true. They have to outgrow that, really. But the deeper they go in love, the more their love for each other, how I put it, incarnate infinity, intimately realized. They realize it becomes less and they're less and less able to find words that could begin to do justice to the oneness that they experience. And so the mystically sensitized person who's blessed with such oneness, with kind of sense of God's the infinity of their oneness. And the oneness with each other is the incarnate presence of God. Like that's what the Catholic tradition means by this. It's a sacrament of God. And uh, so I think looking at it that way, I think helps us to understand where she's coming from. Really, it's, it's not really trying to take the infinity of God and reducing it to a finite, but realizing the finite is eternally established in the infinite and is the incarnate presence of the infinite if we have eyes to see it if we're kind of born into the boundaryless quality 
of this gift of love. Similar to what you were saying earlier about if I, just in standing up, if I could really, really, really see myself standing. But I, I think the addition is it's between two people, so it, it's got that sense of co-creation. That's right. And another way to look at it too, this intrapersonal sense of God within myself has an interpersonal dimension. And so there's a moment, say, again, between two people in a loving union where they say to each other, we're one. And in love, they are one. And uh, uh, one cannot find the place where one stops and the other begins and they're not inclined to try. They're one. But that doesn't annihilate their distinction. Rather, it reveals the mystery of their distinction with each other. Because in love, we are one, but in being one, they don't cease to be two. Because if they would cease to be two, they couldn't be there to know that they're one. And that helps me to, to know that. You know, we, we're in the two-ness, the otherness. But the, one, the otherness is itself permeated by the oneness that utterly permeates it and is itself its reality. And you can find that same sense uh just directly with God in the standing up and sitting down. That's exactly right. And another example too, uh, uh, Brother Lawrence will do later, I think in a, a Carmen Bush, uh, Brother Lawrence. So say if you're gazing at a tree, uh, if, you, if you're just looking at the tree, the tree's other than you. But if you quietly sit and contemplate the tree, what you're doing is you're becoming more present to the one with the presence of the tree. And that somehow the presence of the tree and the presence of your oneness with it merge into a unit of experience. And God's the infinity of that experience. So I think that's the intuition that helps me. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality, features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash O-N-E-I-N-G-A-R-T. Have you taken an online course with the Center for Action and Contemplation? Explore the intersection of ancient wisdom and Jesus' teachings in The Divine Exchange, an online course featuring Cynthia Bourgeau. Fully embrace divine interaction each day, starting June 16th. Register today at cac.org slash online dash ed. That's cac.org slash O-N-L-I-N-E dash E-D. We're going to turn now to some questions about nuptial mystics. So this is a question from Lynn. I'm wondering if you could comment on whether the language is more than symbolic. Other mystics use similar language imagery, trees of Avala, Mirabai. In Hinduism, there is the idea of kundalini energy, which moves up the spine along the chakras and causes phenomena in the body. Do you think Mechtilde and the others are having energetic experiences in the body? My sense is yes. I do. And also in the Hindu tradition, too, the tantric path is also this um, libidinal sexual energy, the chakras and so on. I, I would think so. 
Uh, St. John of the Cross talks about this. He says, in deep mystical union, his poetry is so sensual. And he talks about being physiologically, sexually aroused or awakened in the presence of God. And so it's really utterly transcends those sexual feelings. But at the same time, the infinite presence of God that creates and is giving to us in and as those feelings. Uh, and that's really the deep sense of yoga, too, to do the asanas, to do the postures. It's like a liturgy of the body. So the whole body is praying. So it's, our, it's like the incarnate presence of God in and as and being bodied forth in our body, feeling this way. So I, I would think so. But again, they would, but what Dark Night of the Soul is all about is that we get attached to consolations and stirrings, even in a broader sense of emotional sweetness. So what God does in seeing that we're attached, God takes away the ability to be consoled. And then in that dark night, <clears throat> that deprivation, if we don't panic, we'll run away. See, oh, night lovelier than the dawn that transforms the lover and the beloved into each other. See? And so God sometimes weans us off a more immature form of being attached to this infinite love. So by withholding it from us, we wait for God to deepen it and radicalize it in us. It's one of the dynamics of the path. Jim, you mentioned a, a beautiful statue of Teresa of Avila when we were doing prep with uh, being being stabbed, like with the love wound and having her body in kind of a rippling experience. Yeah, she was, who's the artist? I mentioned the sculptor, Bernini. Uh, no, uh, Let me look. I'll look it up and then I'll say. Uh, it, yeah. I'm going to Rome. If I go, I, I think I will. I've been invited to Rome to give this this conference on science and faith. And that on the tours, that's, that's a beautiful statue. And it's an angel. It's one of her ecstasies she had. And it's an angel uh, uh, piercing her heart with an arrow, then withdrawing it, then piercing it, and withdrawing it. So it's a very erotic. And even her face is like sexual ecstasy. And her clothes are rippling this way. So it's like the mystical dimensions of the sacrament of sensuality in an ecstatic state. But here's an interesting thing with Teresa. She was celibate. She was celibate. And therefore, there are people who are more... Uh, mystically sensual than people who are having a lot of sex. Just like there are people who don't have any children that are more profoundly maternal in their being and have no children than someone who has a lot of children. See? And uh, I think it's an important distinction to make about this. The statue is The Ecstasy of St. Teresa, and it's by uh, Bernini, yes. Bernini, and, uh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's a lovely, people, it's, you people can look, look it, up. it up and take a look at it. Yeah, yeah. it's quite stunning. It's, it's a beautiful piece, yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. I just wanted to add, um, too, that I, I feel like in Western society, many of us have been cut off for, from our bodies or if we've um, done some kind of exercise, it's, it's really a top-down. We're, we're forcing our bodies to do something. And so in deep meditation, I feel like we can get this, uh, bottom-up sense of our body's own life force and and in this the kind of more sexual places of our being is is kind of where we get that real sense of life force and so part of being open to God's presence in meditation I do think can awaken just our own bodies and our presence to our own bodies you know the East uh, yoga traditions the Hindu traditions are so good this way in in the body uh, on this way through the asanas and the breath. Um, and, and also in, in, in Buddhism, it's sort of like when Zen Master Dogen talks about doing zazen, doing the sitting practice. He gets very, like sitting straight, 
uh, where your hands are. There's like a bodily, there's like an archetypal dimension to the posture of the body and uh, uh, awareness of the breath and so on. But it's also in the Christian tradition, but not nearly as much. It's not explicated. You know, for example, in the Jesus Prayer, we'll be looking at that later on the Way of a Pilgrim, the Philokalia, on saying the Jesus Prayer, Jesus mercy, Jesus mercy, and you pair it up with your breathing. But I do think anyone who does deep practice, it's very bodily. They don't explicate it as much in the Christian mystics, but you can just tell it's it's your whole being, being uh, intimately divinized or being awakened to being the divinity of your body, and it's nothingness without God. It's very. It's not some abstract idea, at all. It's very present. You know. A very strong life force that has a quality of of feeling to it. And that's right. yes. yeah, yeah. And by the way, but that's also the connection between mystical awakening and the corporal works of mercy and social justice. See, it's concretized, you know, in expressing it in in, uh, in the world towards oneself and the world and and everything. Well, uh, speaking of the nuptial mystics, we had a few people write in and ask about this Dialogue 3 where one of us lost control of themselves. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I'll just give a little bit of background. One is when we we were preparing for that episode, um, we kind of agreed that I wouldn't read through all the texts that you'd read and we chosen specific parts of the text and I'd practiced those and then right before we're about to record you said hey I read back through the text and I think we need to add in this additional section so I hadn't prepared and read it and for some reason as I was reading it kind of for the first time aloud one I was just picturing Mechtil upright in a stiff rocking chair with a high collar and a bonnet and um, and I was like a you know five year old in school hearing these words for the first time. <laughs> so I don't know. I just I really I got so tickled and I couldn't kind of pull it together. Yeah, and you know what I think happens too. If there's a context for sexual talking, like we were just doing, for example, prayer and sexual feelings or married love, it's a kind. But what makes it funny is if you don't see it coming. See, what makes it funny, you just don't see it coming and you're blindsided by the explicit nature of the language. And I think that's, that's laughter in a way. That's, that's definitely, now you're saying that, that's definitely what happened because I I'd prepared all this part where she's like talking about the terrible body and coming to, to I have to clothe myself with myself and it's so terrible. And then, and then the part I hadn't practiced, she opens up on this <laughs> other experience of her body and so yeah, it, was, it was real the moment was real I think that's real. why the people appreciated it. it was real yeah so anyway thank you for um joining with me in that gym that's what made it so beautiful that I wasn't made to feel embarrassed no not at all <laughs> so one person just sent a reflection on that so I just I wanted to share it her name is Emily and she says I wanted to share my reaction listening to dialogue three I was listening as I often do while walking my dog first thing in the morning when it is still dark and the stars are out and busy being lovely. My first response was delight as Kirsten's giggles and Jim's gentle teasing. I found Kirsten's reaction relatable and very charming. I've listened to the podcast for a good while and am familiar with Kirsten's wise and calm presence. 
The unexpectedness of her reaction to the passage she was reading was so delightfully human, if that makes sense, and only deepened my appreciation for the three of you and the whole podcast. After a short while, my reaction shifted to tears. I'm a school librarian and teacher at a very conservative Catholic school in an ultra-conservative diocese. I've had increasing struggles involving book challenges, usually initiated by parents. I teach a fourth grade child who is deeply upset that I have a book of artwork that contains art from multiple eras and covers, among other things, human nudes. He has demanded that I take the book out of my collection and has accused classmates publicly of checking it out for impure reasons. My paraphrasing, but that is the general charge. His reaction makes me so deeply sad. The art teacher and I have tried to gently explain why artists over the course of human history have sought to study the human form, and we reinforce that our bodies are beautiful creations of God. This only serves to make him angry and tearful, and he continually insists, this is bad, this is inappropriate. The book I have has no sexually explicit pictures, of course, unless you equate nudity with sex. These are classic works of art and you see in la- that you see in large museums and churches. For- anyway, I wanted to let you know that although it seems strange hearing Kirsten dissolve into giggles and saying things like, it's going to say penetrate, was like a healing balm after the week I've had, feeling surrounded by people who seem to see evil and sin everywhere they turn. It was a reassurance that God is playful as well as in love with us and that you can find God's presence in every moment, sometimes most powerfully, where we least expect it. It is sad that they they put it that way, it's impure. You know, if it's explicit, it must be impure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And we're going to have some questions later about how people have such a challenge with the God image, and I think part of it is this kind of, you know, uh, the the, the way people put these things on us as little children that aren't helpful. Yeah, and the Catholic Church has a a regrettable history around this too, about the body, sexuality, and there's a history about the way it's growing out of it. But um, uh, and then to the general society goes too far the other way. Mm -hmm. I mean, just kind of degradation of, yeah, just... Okay, well, thank you so much, Emily, for writing in. Okay, so we'll turn to our next topic, and there's some questions about Mictel's writings. And the first question is from Christoph, and he says, About Mechtild of Magdeburg, the, the original text has not been preserved. We only have a German-to-German German translation, probably from, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce it, a type of low German to the, the today's Swiss Alemannic. Yeah. According to the style, it belongs to the medieval and courtly literary genre mini which was probably very modern, as one would say today, hip or in at the time. And so the questions are, um, do literary or other scholarly scholarly statements about MacTilde's book take anything away from the depth and intensity of the statements, the possibility of empathetically participating and witnessing MacTilde's ecstatic unio mystica across time? And then there's a second question, does the literary genre mini take something away from the depth of Mechtild's statements? Yes, that's a good question. Um, my, my sense is, is it, it, it depends. depends. You would assume um, that the scholarly person writing uh, an explanation of the, t- of the text 
you would assume that they're very aware that really they're trying to clarify the themes that are present in the writing, like the theological themes, the anthropological themes, the historical themes. But they're very aware that the text itself is not reducible to the sum total of those themes. And you would also, but there is this danger, and I think this person's picking this up, is that somehow that what the person is saying can be explained conceptually mm. this way. An example we use with Meister Eckhart, Reiner Sherman shares, an example that we, with Eckhart, he says the whole debate around Eckhart accusing him of pantheism has to do with the distinction between indicative thought and imperative thought. Indicative thought explains what is theologically. And he taught at the University of Paris and his Latin works are more theological. God is Trinity, God is eternal, God is love. That has, that has a place. Imperative thought, the role of the preacher, the mystic teacher, their words are addressed directly to the heart in the midst of a great turning. See, it's being overtaken by the unexplainable. The transcends anything that could be. Notice the mystics aren't explaining anything. See? But they're revealing or bearing witness to deepening layers of realization of God. And so they, they could, but I, I found them to be very helpful to go back and forth to read the text. For example, in the Paulist Press series, like with Michteld, the introduction there and the preface are very helpful. And to, to read the text, read the introduction, the preface, and then go back and read it in the light of the introduction, uh, I find the two combined together to be very helpful in, 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 in that. So, yeah. so the answer is no, it's not necessarily violating it, but it can if it's, if it's understood um, reductionistically as if it can be explained. Yeah. And also, Jim, this idea about the, the language of the age, and I think the question is around, you know, her use of this ecstatic language was kind of trendy. So was it, was it real and does it communicate a, a, a true resonance with God, or is she more just being trendy in the? No, I no, I don't. I don't think so. I, I really don't think so. I, I think when again in the interview with Bernard McGinn, you don't get any ecstatic talk in Meister Eckhart. It's really a language of detachment, see, from images in the midst of the world, like the divinity of the immediacy, et cetera. Don't get any. But with Michtel and Teresa and John, the you know Bernard Clairvaux, other mystics will be looking at. And I think she was an ecstatic mystic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it was really, that's how God worked with her. And I think for a lot of us in different ways as we go deeper, it's not either or, but it's a balance of each. There's certain kind of ecstatic shimmers where it shines forth. And there's a certain kind of deep, unexplainable understanding uh, that can't be explained. And I, th- I think that balance or harmony is personal to how God works with each one of us. Yes, and she was an amazing writer too. So she was able to use the combined gifts of of her writing, you know, and her ability to write in the drama of the day with this uh, real experience. Yeah, yeah. she's a gifted lit- literary person. It's literature. She was very gifted that way in how she could put words to these things. Yeah. Peter asked a question about her writing and he says, how much do you think Mechtilde is making biblical allusions? In some ways she could be referring to individual passages and in other ways she could just be using the common language of the Bible that she is using to describe her own life experience. Now this is my sense of this, that uh, 
she's, when you really look at it, what these mystics are doing, they, they take a passage or a set of passages revealed in scripture and under the impulse of grace, uh, embody the mystical dimensions of that. And to the extent the person is explicitly using text of scripture, or they're in this contemplative ethos of scripture itself as a revelation of God's word, it varies a lot. For example, with Meister Eckhart, he always begins with the text. Mm -hmm. It's a homily, on it, and he ends with a prayer. Uh, St. John of the Cross, um, he said his sole guide is scripture. But it's not apologetics, it's not like proof text. It's the mystical dimensions of scripture. And again, an example that I use, if you take the collected works of John of the Cross, and underlying all the Bible passages in red, and the commentary on Scripture in yellow, it's a Scripture commentary. Other people, they don't follow it that closely, but it's all in the spirit of Scripture, of the, of the revealed Word of God revealed through Jesus, through the prophets and the Psalms. And, and so I, I think hers is a more of a general uh, internalization of Scripture, uh, understood in the mystical dimensions of God's oneness with us. Yeah, that's really helpful. So I guess, Jim, with all these Christian mystics, for them to be a classical Christian mystic, they were deeply um, into Scripture. They, they, yeah. yeah. I'll put it another way, too. Later, when we look at other mystics and other traditions, like Jewish mystics, Hinduism, Buddhism, and so on, uh, what you find is there's a mystical dimension in all the world's religions. So in Judaism, it's the Kabbalah the uncreated and the sparks of God and hidden in things. In Islam, it's, it's the way of the Sufi. It's, it's Rumi and Hafiz. And um, in Hinduism, Namaste, uh, I am that, Brahman and Atman are one, the Bhagavad Gita uh, and the Buddha. And so, so, so what you always find is a lineage, but also with New Age spirituality, one way of understanding New Age, it's a mystically awakened person outside all the lineages. You can be deeply awakened and not identify with any. This is why I'm going to say that some poets are clearly mystic. We're going to look at some artists are visual mystics, music mystics. And so you can have it. And what's often lacking in New Age is it lacks the depth of death. It lacks dying to everything less than the infinite to which they've been awakened. This incarnate in their body and their breathing. A lot of the New Age doesn't take that step, you know. But so, but for the Christians, they see themselves as disciples of Jesus and in the spirit of the scriptures. You know? Beautiful. This is a question from Heather. At the end of MacTilde's life, when she refers to her soul talking to her body, could this not be the voice of the Holy Spirit? Jesus tells us that he left us with the advocate, the comforter, one that speaks to us. I find it difficult to understand why God would stop speaking to her and she would interpret the voice as her soul's. If possible, could you help me understand this? Yeah, I don't, I don't think she means it in that way, that God stopped speaking with her, so now the voices are so. I think it's this literary moving back and forth. I would think it would be more this way. It would be the deep awareness of God's uh, infinite communion with and being given as the mystery of her soul. See? And it's nothingness without God. So it's not that God stops speaking to her, so it's her soul. But rather, in a sense, her soul is the incarnate presence of God and her soul's nothingness without God. 
I think it's more. I think it's more that way. See, that's why I like that quote from uh, Romano Guardini. This thing about that uh, I am not God, but I'm not other than God either. See? I'm not any of you, but I'm not other than any of you either. I'm not the earth, but I'm not other than the earth either. He says, I think this is this the turning point of this unit of language that the mystics freely move move through and share with us. Mm-hmm. Where would you place the Holy Spirit, Jim, in that dialogue? I, I put it in two ways. First of all, uh, in the transubjective union of the Trinity, uh, the Holy Spirit is the love that's arising from the infinite union of the Father and the Son and their contemplation of each other. Secondly, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the indwelling presence of God. And next, the Holy Spirit is the awakener of our hearts. So when we hear in Scripture, God loves us through the power of the Spirit who dwells in our hearts, uh, uh, Paul speaks about with unutterable groanings, the Spirit within us yearns that we would realize God does love us. But it's through the gift of the Spirit within us that we know the truth of the love, not just as a fact on the page. And so I think the Spirit is understood in those in those ways. So in that dialogue, it, it would be, the, the spirit would be the kind of the way she's even able to have this dialogue with the soul and God, like it's it, it's within that realization. Yeah, I get the feeling with Mikta, all these mistakes, you get the feeling she's in the flow. You don't get the feeling she's making this up or whatever, she, like she's channeling God's voice and she is so surrendered over to it, it's just flowing that's who these mystic teachers are, I think. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, you can tell when you read them, it's not, there's nothing contrived or forced. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not coming from them either, but through them. Yeah. And you can tell they're kind of surrendering to it, like freely choosing to allow the channeling of that. And that's why, that's why it gets to us the way it does, mm. I think. Wonderful. So like in your the language where you're talking about the Holy Spirit, it's, it's just like full participation in the Trinity. It's yeah, not, exactly. Yeah, that's not, exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And that's why we're in the presence of the teacher's voice. We're in the presence of God. Because it's in the presence of God in and as the incarnate surrender of the teacher being God's voice, addressing and touching our hearts unexplainably. And um, yeah, the Logos. Yeah. Lovely. So thank you, Jim, for taking us through part one of listener questions. And Corey, thank you again for everything you do for us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.